welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Brody, and today I am privileged to spend time with David Bailey, Executive Director of Erebon, a ministry that seeks to equip church leaders for the work of racial reconciliation and justice. David and I met in July 2018 in St. Louis at the annual conference of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. Welcome, David. It's great to have you. Great yeah, to man. have you here today, and and so good to get to hear you speak again uh, yeah. this morning. So uh, glad to be here and be with you all. Oh, thanks. I wonder if you could share first with us what are your earliest memories of of congregational singing. Oh, man, my earliest memory of congregational singing. So the first church I was a part of was actually a storefront church, mm. and when you hear storefront church, you kind of think. Uh, Pentecostal kind of, um, but it actually was quite interesting. It was kind of some black middle-class professionals, like nurses, teachers. Uh, I was at a storefront church that was kind of charismatic, and then um, and so we would sing actually out of hymnals. Mm. The lady that played the piano uh, couldn't play by ear; she could only read. She grew up in a uh, United Methodist church in South Carolina, and uh, so it was all black folks. And then when I was about eight, we um, started to connect with another church that was actually um, in a housing project and they had a more Pentecostal kind of background um, in, a, in a housing projects. And so that church merged together and that really became a really formative space. I started um, tinkering around on the piano around eight and I was really starting to play around 11, like as a, as a regular church musician, it was in a, Black church context where there's apprenticing yeah, type yeah. of model. You so know? no so formal lessons, but I took about uh, eight lessons when I was about eight, and then it, then uh, when I um, and then my music teacher moved away, and it was like an eight dollars <laughs> a lesson yeah. kind of thing with my neighbor. So <laughs> then at eleven, I started I started middle school band playing saxophone, mm. but then from there I just started picking up instruments mm. and playing. Yeah, that's great. It strikes me that's. Um, at least as I've observed in, in some churches, that's such a rich um, uh, method of training yeah. of musicians yeah. where, you know, even young kids are jumping in and, and playing along or sitting in in rehearsal. Yeah. And um, I think there's a lot we can... Uh, it's a gift that keeps on giving, you know. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, when I was on staff at a predominantly white church, you know, that was something new I kind of brought into it. Mm. And unfortunately, it's something that they left because then they wanted... All of the like they were so concerned about their choir, yeah, yeah. or they like want to have like a youth band, but really like just like literally, if somebody a kid wants to play drums, we'll just sit next to the drummer after service, and then the, and then like, hey, how do you do this thing? Yeah, yeah. and the keyboard tell you know how to do stuff, you know, yeah. and so um, it's it's a gift that keeps on giving. I think I think every church needs to have um, definitely a, a worship pastor, like somebody that's like shepherding artists. I think have a music director that can arrange things and and even like a vocal director that can arrange things, but you definitely need to have music education, yeah. you know, as a key component of it. Well, and there's so much emphasis today on intergenerational in yeah. worship, and yeah. this seems like a primary a, yeah. uh, sort of no-brainer intergenerational yeah. way to do music, where yeah. young younger musicians are being mentored by older musicians. Yeah. and Totally. Uh, and probably the other way as well, where yeah. older musicians that may not know how to play in, in newer forms are learning that from the yeah. younger musicians. I mean, part of the deal is it's like, I mean, so I, 
had this church formation, but I I just have always just loved older music. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I can't tell you what's out on the radio right now, but I could tell you about you know some movies from the '60s and '70s, <laughs> and I just feel like that's like a golden era of music for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the the two artists that I really love um, the most. Um, um, was um, Quincy Jones and Miles Davis. And the reason why their longevity and their uh, career was, you know, Quincy Jones, he produced Michael Jackson, but he was like 50 years old when Thriller (laughs) came out, right? And Michael Jackson was in his 20s. And so, um, but Quincy Jones was like 20, like maybe, might have been 1920 years old when he got on with like Charlie Parker Mm. and he was 25 when he was um, Dizzy Gillespie's music director when um, he Dizzy Gillespie did a European tour. Mm. And so, you know, he had like an apprenticing kind of model and then he ended up doing the same thing. And the people always like talk about Michael Jackson. I agree with saying Michael Jackson was great. Yeah. He was a genius. Yeah. But the most amount of albums he sold was with Quincy Jones. Yes. Yeah. You know, Miles Davis no I'm sorry, Miles Davis ended up picking up with Charlie Parker. Quincy Jones did some other stuff, but Miles Davis when he was 19 was with Charlie Parker uh, when Dizzy, him and Dizzy Gillespie split. And um, but then by the time he did the uh, the the What's Going On album, he had younger musicians. You know, then he had the sextet with like uh, Herbie Hancock, and I mean, he even was doing rap before he died. You know, because he just was like, I'm going to always stick with the 20 somethings. You yeah, know, and just yeah. try to. And I think we, I think that's what we have to do um, because the relationship is symbiotic in both ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, tell us a little bit about your your faith journey. Man, my faith journey. I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, my uh, dad, parents came. My dad came. I mean, he, you know, he grew up in like a Baptist. You know, um, I mean, even a black atheist, a Baptist. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. So it's just you just have like. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's just, you know, faith part of the black culture, but he really became like a committed, like kind of Christian oriented in the way he lived his life. And it's, I think kind of mid thirties, um, he really took his faith seriously. My parents took his faith really seriously. Um, came to faith through actually the 700 club. Oh, really? And so, yeah. So I was really shaped by a lot of the kind of, um, like fundamentalist conservative type of, um, activity. What was really good about that is a lot of people have a lot of baggage in that area for a lot of good reasons. Um, but my, our parents, their walk was way better than their talk. Mm-hmm. They were very like generous people. They were people who, even though we lived in the suburbs, we went to church in the inner city. They really did a lot of empowerment. And around 2010, I went to the Christian Community Development Association conference with Dr. John Perkins. And I was telling my parents about, hey, have you heard about this thing called CCDA, Christian Community Development Association? And my dad was like, oh, I thought that's what you call being a Christian, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the kind of faith I grew up in and, like, shaped in um, a lot of intersection in that area. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what that journey was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when I was eight, I was slow to read. Mm-hmm. So my dad figured out, well, I'll get him an eight-year-old kind of reading-level Bible. Mm-hmm. But what I have to do is read two chapters of Old Testament, two chapters of New Testament, Proverbs and Psalms every day. Huh. So six chapters of the Bible. And I grew up in those old school households where you just do what your parents do and don't, like, question it. <laughs> yeah. But that's the kind of old. I was like, man, Dad, I think that might have been a lot for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know? 
So, but it gave me a love for the word and scriptures yeah. and just a familiarity with it. And so, you know, for the last 30 years, I basically have read through Proverbs mm. once a month, you mm. know, mm. and it's, it's really shaped and formed my life, you know, yeah. so. Isn't that great how that discipline that you, you know, it, I mean, the purpose of it was yeah. really, I, I'm sure your parents had in mind this sort of secondary spiritual yeah. purpose, but yeah. really to help you read and yet that yeah. habit that you formed yeah. then has stayed with you. Stay with me, man. It's been really great. It's really That's good. Great. I'm very grateful. I, my parents were, um, we went to a church where we had really long sermons, like hour-long sermons uh-huh. every Sunday. And yeah, I remember at one point, you know, telling my parents, why, I've got to have something else to do during this time. I mean, I was seven or eight. And so they said, well, you can read your Bible. That's the only thing you can do. So I had this kind of comic book sort of uh, Bible, yeah. but it was the whole, it was, it was yeah. mostly there. And I mean, I learned so much of the Bible. <laughs> Yeah. Reading through those sermons, you know, yeah. during those Sundays. That's good. That's good. Um, so, all right. Well, I, I want to turn to um, some of what you're talking about today. Could you unpack the word reconciliation? Yeah. We talked. You talked a little bit about that uh, in a session uh, here at the conference, and and how should we think about or use this term reconciliation? Yeah. So a lot of times in reconciliation, particularly as it relates to like a relationship. It's, there's an idea that something was broken, but even more so that like folks were like equal, and there was some mutuality or some kind of synergy going on. It was broken. He's trying to reconcile that and mend it back together. And in the racial social theory space and people that uh, just students of history, a lot of people don't like that word reconciliation. And the reason why is because white Europeans, uh, Africans, and natives were never equal together in relationships and equality. Hmm. So they say the best that you could do is have conciliation. Yeah. And um, and I, I agree with that. I mean, it's true. Like it's, That's just a historical fact. But the reason why we at Arabon really um, commit to use the word reconciliation is because it's a, we use it as a theological term that is saying that the world was whole and it got broken. Hmm. And God's bringing it, mending it back together. Hmm. So that's what we're like, how, what we're using the word. And then when you get into the, for the Christian, it's never like, oh, what? The world's broken? But it's really like, what are the details? And when you get into the American narrative details, you realize it's been broken from the very beginning. <laughs> and we haven't fully healed from that. And God's calling us to live into some of that, um, that process of mending. That reconciliation, it seems like as you're speaking, is a, it's the reconciling to God as much yeah. as it is to to each other. Yeah, it's yeah. this. It's it's bringing it back a, a step from yeah relationships yeah. Uh, to bigger. Yeah, picture. I mean, I think I mean, I think when you understand the Christian narrative, God, humanity, and the land, and when I say the land, it means the animals and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things are so interconnected in yeah. ways that God is it's done, and there's there has been kind of, you know, colonial Western imperialism that has separated a lot of these things. And and we got to understand, like, all theology is historically and culturally influenced. Hmm. And so there's there's a reason why we've inherited holes in our theology hmm. as related to, like, a true vision of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Hmm. You know, and there's a reason why we've only focused on the spiritual side of... Um, fall and redemption yeah. and spiritualized it but haven't really dealt with the full humanity of 
uh, what does it mean to be reconciled with God to one another and the land of which we mm-hmm. were called to steward for not for only um, just for the stewardship's sake but even for our own flourishing yeah you know? yeah well, that's good uh, many are familiar with the quote um, that I think is attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour uh, in, the, in America. You've been in the trenches of, of working to desegregate worship. Um, what wisdom do you have to share from your experience? Yeah. I intuitively started to get into, quote-unquote, desegregating worship, or, or working on church desegregation through worship. <laughs> Some of it had to do with being a musician, but then I also like um, pr- pretty much being a music uh, music producer, and that's kind of really what my skills were. Mm-hmm. It was in music production. When you're a music producer, you're pretty much a cultural anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Or a music director, you're pretty much a cultural anthropologist. And the way I explain that is, is that you know when I used to play at the country club, you know what makes somebody dance at the country club is one thing. Once, what makes somebody dance at the Black Pentecostal church is another thing. Mm-hmm. And what makes the Presbyterian sway, <laughs> that's all cultural anthropology. Yeah, yeah. So you intuitively know and pick that stuff up. But then, you know, when I'm on the bandstand or if I'm, like, thinking about a record and producing a record, mm-hmm. thinking about demographic of the people, the audience, the artists, the executive producer, somebody's paying for this, you know, all these dynamics, mm-hmm. that's all cultural anthropology and understanding sociology and psychology of how people work. Um, I realized that a lot of pastors didn't, apply those same principles. Mm-hmm. Some of the pastors might if they were evangelists, they're really good evangelists, or if they used to be missionaries overseas. But I realized that we all need those skills. Like a lot of people just say, I'm just going to preach, I'm just going to like sing songs and do the ministry mm-hmm. and let the Holy Spirit do whatever the Holy Spirit does. And it's like, uh, yeah, but you know, you know, you just didn't like, let, when you went to go plant the church, you just didn't say, I'm going to see what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, yeah. You actually did some demographic studies, you <clears throat> talk to people about a vision and make sure you could communicate to those people about the vision in ways that they would want to get involved with your church plan. And so, you know, that's all anthropological, right? That's all sociological. And so it started to kind of like apply some of those um, principles. And I really saw that worship, that culture was really shaped through worship. I originally was thinking music. Then as I got introduced to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, I learned more about liturgy and just began to translate a lot more things and just kind of got more categories and um, when we were in our involved with our church we intuitively kind of knew this but then James K. H. Smith in his book uh, Design of the Kingdom yeah. says like what you practice on a regular basis your liturgy shapes your worship <laughs> and so for us it's it's not a mis- uh, uh, issue of um, uh, I mean it's true that like what you do in worship shapes, shapes your imagination of the kingdom <laughs> But it's also about like who you do your worship with, yeah. shapes your imagination of the kingdom. Yeah. And so we we basically been kind of going after that and really trying to help folks in that area. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing I'll say just for the moment would be uh, around three years ago I stopped performing uh, for a, a few reasons. One was just I just could keep up with the level of professionalism I used to, I used to be a play at and having my organization and speaking and traveling. Mm-hmm. But then I also realized that, like, when you do music really well, people don't understand oftentimes what's going on mm-hmm. underneath. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard. Like, folks were like, oh, man, what we got to do is get a band like Urban Doxology. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what we really need. And it's like, no, like, 
what you see herbal thermonoxology is eight years of discipleship. Yeah, you yeah. know, you see incarnational pastoral ministry. You know, and and it's and the magic trick just is necessarily if I do the right songs or in the music. Yeah, I do think there's something special about music and there's something special about worship. But it's really about culture making and with collaboration and community yeah. through the lens of reconciliation and, and, and like really apprenticing and helping to make some disciples yeah. in this yeah. area. That's that's what happens. So it's like it's really cool that this stage of the ministry, urban ecology ministers all around the country and they're doing like really amazing stuff ministry wise, both as a group but then in their own personal lives and yeah. ministry. It's great to see them now in their 30s and, you know, folks that who were alumni. And now they're training and they're running the internship mm-hmm. of young people, you know, between 18 to 25 now mm-hmm. when they used to be that, you know, six, seven years, eight years ago. Yeah. So that, that's a really exciting and cool thing to see. It seems like a lot of churches tackling some of these questions perhaps are tempted to come at them the same in the same sort of failed way that many did these sort of traditional contemporary uh, worship wars, yeah. uh, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. where they said, oh, we need to get more people. We just need to have a contemporary service. Then they'll yeah. come. Yeah. And they realized, oh, maybe there are some bigger issues here that yeah. we need to deal with. It's not yeah. just having a certain style of music or having a certain... And it uh, it seems like maybe there are some parallels here. Yeah, so. that's the thing. I think, like, I mean, I just realized I probably need to devote a little more time to try to help people think through some of those mm-hmm. those issues, you know, and to help equip churches and Christian communities to think through that, whether or not churches to think through some of the details of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of recent discussion and acknowledgement of the ways that race, gender, education... Um, among other factors, privilege some people over others. How does this play out in worship? I mean, it's crazy that James talked about this 2,000 years ago, right? (laughs) I mean, he was like, hey, when you got a poor brother and sister comes in, um, and then you got a rich brother and sister that comes in, and you pull out the red carpet, (laughs) It's crazy that um, it's crazy that Paul, through communion, is like, "Well, some of y'all get there early, <laughs> uh, you may, you know, because you're in charge of your own schedule." I mean, I don't know what the con- total context of it was, but I imagine it's like y'all got this love feast, mm-hmm. this communion table, and uh, some of y'all uh, are in charge of your own schedule because you. You know, you make a certain amount of money or you have a professional white-collar job and then you get there early, you eat all the food up. Yeah. And other folks um, who really need the money because, you know, they're hourly workers or hmm. they get off when their boss gets, says they get off. And um, by the time they get there, there's no food left, you know. Hmm. So it's just a justice in class. And hmm. God's like, man, this should be so with my people, you know. Yeah. So that's what people are talking about when they talk about equity now whether it's racial equity or accessibility um, to people with, with different socioeconomic challenges. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what folks are talking about, but the scriptures have been talking about it for years, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. God's people were formed in oppression, you know. And I think when we don't read the Bible through that lens, yeah. that um, in Exodus, you know, that God heard the cry of the oppressed, and he began to form the people out there, and he said, hey, I... Basically, it's like, I allowed you to be formed. I, you could have been formed just 
out of nice, privileged people. Mm. But I, I, performed, I, I formed you out of slavery. Mm. Mm. So you can remember what it's like to be an immigrant, that you're going to like what, the, what it's like to be economically vulnerable. Mm. And so I think when we forget that, then we can make God out to be something that is not and make the Bible out to something that is not. Mm. Yeah, thank you. A major focus of your work has been helping individuals write new songs for the church. Mm. What songs are we not singing? And what do you look for in a new song or what do you encourage? How do you nurture that creation of new songs? Well, one thing I'll say is like, I'll kind of nuance what we're doing. We're taking individuals and trying to help them to write collaboratively, to bring their full selves into it, whether they're privileged or they're under-resourced, they're economically privileged or economically vulnerable. Um, whether they have the same race and ethnicity, but we really try to bring diverse together, like work together, mm-hmm. different cultural backgrounds. And so what we're looking for is, you know, we try to say like, hey, we're not writing something that's already been written, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not writing like what I call Jesus My Boyfriend songs, you know, that, I mean, I like R&B, you know, but I'd rather R&B to be real R&B <laughs> and not like, <laughs> you know? Um, love love songs but you know and I do think there's a space for love and intimacy with God that I think is there but it's like man people are writing that yeah, you know yeah. let's write something new I think I think Old Testament like just pick anything in the Old Testament mm-hmm. other than the like classic songs you yeah, know yeah. but like get into the narratives of the Old Testament which we really encourage them to do that if you talk about grace then it's like don't look at Romans for grace mm-hmm. look at Abraham for grace mm-hmm. and look at Jacob for grace mm-hmm. And what is it like to wrestle with God? You know, um, so those are things that we look look for. We try to look at the themes that we have in our church, and we kind of go from there and say like, "Hey, what we feel like the Spirit's leading us in as a church." And then we have the interns like study texts along that line, and then we try to look for texts that aren't common, and then kind of go from there. I love that focus on collaboration yeah. because it seems to me that's a that's one way, perhaps, to combat privilege. Yeah. Because if, you, if you're if you living with privilege, you may have a sense that you can do it all yourself. Yeah. And that forcing to collaborate causes you to realize, no, I, I need others, other people with other backgrounds, people with other different gifts than I have, people with, um, I, I, need, I need others to be able to create. Yeah. What can churches do? to encourage the creation of songs for worship? I mean, I think the one thing is is prioritize it economically. Hmm. I think really commissioning it. Um, and I think there's a space where, then there's trade-offs. I think, I think churches should definitely commission artists and give artists room to make stuff just to make things as artists. I hmm. think we need to have songs that aren't related to worship we have artists that do that. I think that's and it's really good mission and worship budget, budget yeah. you know? Because yeah. worship and mission go hand in hand. Mm. Um, where worship ends, mission begins. Where mission ends, worship begins, mm. you know? Mm. Like I think that might be John Piper or something like that. But I want to just, yeah, I want to say another thing is just actually commission mm. the work. And like we could, you could, I think there's a place to commission uh, artists to just like, hey, can you write this worship song? I think there's another space to commission artists to um, 
like work together collaboratively. Yeah, yeah. With a goal in mind, a short like a, some kind of like decent amount of short term goal to make and you know, for us we did a week internship and hmm. get the right as many songs as possible but then hone it down to excuse me, twelve to fourteen that hmm. but they might write forty to fifty tunes yeah. and um, we say like, hey you just gotta write you know, ten bad songs or average songs <laughs> before you get one really good one. Yeah. So yeah. we don't know where it, we don't know if it's gonna be the tenth time or the eleventh time or the first <laughs> one, but you know, let's just get it going. And so that's what we really encourage them to do. Yeah. And um, I think that's such great advice to songwriters to expect that you're gonna write some some bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, you, are, yeah. you know, and if you don't get through that, if you don't get through those bad ones, you're not gonna get get to the good ones. Yeah, I mean, think about guys like Prince or um, or ladies like Carol King or Joe William Baez, James Taylor, um, uh, the Beatles, you know, Paul and um, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Stevie Wonder. I mean, they wrote hundreds and hundreds and over a lifetime thousands of songs yeah and the ones that we sing are just like one out of you know <laughs> 50 songs that were you know bad and then sometimes they be just totally bad albums because they were just like trying to like yeah. for whatever reasons you know but they just you know so even they they got bad um stuff and so everybody starts somewhere and i just want to encourage hmm. people just to go for it i always um when i was an artist on a more regular basis, um, I there's a recording of Smokey Robinson singing the first the first recording "Who's Loving You" when, it, when he was with the Miracles, huh. and um, I know it's petty, man, but, but Smokey Robinson he cracks on that song. And he goes, <laughs> "I would never," and it just he cracks, and like I laugh every single time, and it's like encouraging because I'm like the great, yeah. amazing Smokey Robinson who wrote "My Girl." And uh, uh, with all kinds of hits, hmm. he cracked and sounded terrible <laughs> on a recording that people can hear to this day. Hmm. And then you had little Michael Jackson at 10, 11 years old, so Who's Loving You, hmm. later on. And it was just an amazing, beautiful, classic performance. Yeah. You know, but it's like even Smokey Robson had to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And so I just try to not have an ego and I try to encourage the interns. And uh, and everybody else is our interns now, but even as a group, as a as a leader of the group, I try to say like, hey, let's not have an ego, and everybody mm-hmm. starts somewhere, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. You used an image today that uh, as a caution to churches who are expanding their congregational song repertoire. You said, don't smother it in ranch dressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you expand on that? That's talk, funny. talk about what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, sometimes people, I mean, I think we're in a space where, um, you know, you either have conservative and you have kind of, like, progressive or liberal, however you want to categorize yourself, you know? Let's just say, I think, let's just say progressive and conservative. A lot of time in conservative spaces, they're like, man, should we do this? Or what should, you know, we do, you know, like, and it's just like a hesitance to go. Hmm. And progressive side, you can actually go to do more diversity. But then what happens is, it's like, culturally instead of like getting in and learning the language and learning really how to do it and, and going through the humiliating process of education yeah and just like you gotta feel stupid you know yeah. like like yeah. You, you can't learn anything 
if if you have to be smart the whole time. Mm. Mm. And so what happens is is that people will like hear the song and then um, um, or, or or get the transcription it's, and just kind of like I'll put ranch dressing over it, like just not really learn the style, yeah. not yeah. really get into it because they don't want to look stupid, you know. But it's just like if I learn a language, you know, people actually give you grace. If I go to France and I'm like stumbling on the words, I'm trying to like understand the words, they'll give me grace because I'm make, trying to make the effort. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes what happens is um, as Americans, we're in a different country and people, we're talking English and people are understanding and then we just start talking louder yeah. and expect people to acquiesce to us. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of how we can sometimes do in our songwriting. Like, you know, like there's a whole genre of Negro spirituals that that doesn't sound like the way um, folks that were on plantations would sing. Hmm. If you want to have an idea of somewhat what someone on plantation would sing, think about what a sorrow song was saying and uh, think about uh, what the blues sounds like and try to go in that way, you know? And and one of the things that gets in the way oftentimes is that people who are readers, music readers, they're terrified to use their ears. And it's like, no, music is an oral tradition, an oral tradition, or an oral, and uh, it's a practicing tradition, so you you just gotta like mimic Mm before you learn, most people learn how to talk before they learn how to read. Mm. And so, uh, you know, those are things where I say you can put ranch dressing on and if you just like insist it has to be red, mm. it's not worth singing if it's not red or yeah. these kind of funky values that we can have. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really helpful. Well, David, it's been so great spending this yeah. time with you. So and good I too, man. appreciate it. Um, I want to finish with five questions. These are five questions that that I close each interview with. Cool. Which hymn or song would you say has most shaped your faith? Oh, my gosh. Shaped my faith. Man, that's a really great question. There's two things that come to mind. I'm not a big nature person, but I remember the first time. I, I like water. and boat. So the first time I was on a boat, hmm. uh, and I spent the night over a boat when I was maybe 10 or 12. <laughs> somewhere around that age and uh, I remember just seeing how great thou art on the mm. sunset on the boat mm. so that that, that song has meant, has meant a lot to me doing this kind of work like God's given me a grace to do this kind mm. of work but doing this work is very just hard and heavy it just is you know it's just like heavy content so there's a lot of things I don't do like I don't watch the news on a regular basis mm. uh, there are certain kind of television shows I don't watch you know um, to keep my soul yeah. resilient you know um, but in the midst of doing this and trying to run the organization and doing really, really hard pioneer work, I actually have a Spotify playlist called Encourage Me in the Lord, Fred. <laughs> and it's Fred Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's it's Fred Hammond. Of it's kind of like, man, like during the 90s, man, that brother used to like have like amazing harmonies and beats <laughs> and lyrics and it was like scripture based mm-hmm. just really great excellent music and, and he just could kind of like cry out and mm-hmm. and just empathize with like how like how tough things are but then how God's going to bring you through <laughs> so um, when I'm just feeling a little dark or sad or overwhelmed, mm. I just put that encouragement in the Lord, Fred. Soundtrack mm. on. <laughs> like, That's great. And it gets me through. <laughs> 
Well, you actually just answered, I think, my next question, which was, what humor song do you turn to for comfort? So maybe just Fred Hammond. Uh, yeah, 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 answer yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say Fred Hammond. Yeah, I think that would that would kind of be a space. And um, I like a lot of music. I mean, I mean, I like a lot of different styles of music, but I think for me, music coming out of people who suffered mm-hmm. has really just helped me in mm-hmm. my faith journey. Mm-hmm. What's your What's your favorite piece of music? doesn't have to be a hymn or a song, but it could be. Favorite piece of music? I love Earth, Wind & Fire's Fantasy. Mm-hmm. A particular performance, live performance that they have with Philip Bailey just goes in the rafters on his falsetto. Mm-hmm. But I, I love like Earth, Wind & Fire and their arrangements and how they pull things together. Mm-hmm. I love um, Quincy Jones' Quintessence uh, album. Mm-hmm. That's really, really great. I love Count Basie and a lot of his um, big band stuff. So, and then, then like Bach is like just. I mean, I just love Bach. Like, I, I think one of my most favorite melodies ever that I just think is brilliant. And I just like, how did he think of this? Is the Aaron G mm-hmm. melody? We hold that melody out forever. Yeah, like yeah. you can't hold out any longer. <laughs> And it's like, where's this gonna go? <laughs> and then just how it gets to, I mean, I just love yeah. it. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man. So I think those are, yeah, I love James Taylor. Um, <laughs> some city song, right? Yeah, so it's, it's. Uh, that's great. That's yeah. quite the range there. Yeah. That's wonderful. What book other than the Bible has most shaped your faith or influenced your vocation? That's good. Oh, wow. So, um, Frederick Douglass saved me in two ways. His autobiography. His, he wrote four autobiographies. I think it's his first autobiography. It was the one, the um, Life and Narrative. I wasn't a good, I was not a good student from first grade to 11th grade. <laughs> I think, you know, I think, if, I think the environment just wasn't, I think I was probably bored, really being social. And my mom was a teacher. And so she's like, David, could you stop embarrassing me? I'm a teacher, man. <laughs> but I just, you know, probably if I was homeschooled or went to like a magnet school or something like that, I probably did much better. Um, but in 11th grade, I remember taking um, African-American literature class. I was like, I'm black and I can read, so it's going to be easy. I read uh, Frederick Douglass' autobiography, the particular section where the mistress was teaching him how to read. And the slave master came in and found out and said, you know, don't teach a slave how to read because he won't be a good slave anymore. Hmm. And Frederick Douglass realized that he needed to, um, that was key to his freedom. Hmm. And so he would trick, um, you know, the, I guess the kids on the plantation, the, the children of the, you know, owners on the plantation on the read said, hey, I bet you I know how to spell this word. It's like, nope, shoot, you know, and he's like, this is how you spell it. Huh. And, uh, or he would just take pieces of paper and try to figure out what it, what it was out the trash can, you know, um, and the way that he ended up um, uh, escaping from slavery was he wrote himself a note saying that he was supposed to go to so and so, and they didn't think that he could read as an enslaved individual, huh. and so that's how he ended up walking to his own freedom and escaped. And um, when I read that, man, it just really clicked to me that like so many people bled and died so that I could uh, be educated and. Hmm. I realized 
shortly after I started reading everything about Frederick Douglass and black history and stuff, and I'm going to realize the narrative that African Americans have been told in school is like black people were slaves, like not that Africa's in Egypt and that the mm. birth of civilization is there yeah, and yeah. all of this stuff that I ended up learning later on, but it's like, you're a slave, Lake has set you free, Martin Luther King had a dream. Mm. I didn't even have Barack Obama when I was growing up, so it was just like, <laughs> that's a horrible story to look in the past. Yeah, yeah. But then when I saw the story of Frederick Douglass, like that like saved my intellectual life mm -hmm. and it gave me rebirth so when you walk into my house the first picture you see is a picture of Frederick Douglass at a friend of mine painted for me huh. and then um, Frederick Douglass um, saved my spiritual life and so there's this like quote that I, I uh, keep from um, Frederick Douglass uh, this is an essay about comparing the religion of this land and the religion of the Bible. It says, what I've said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. I, uh, for between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is a necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. Mm -hmm. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can know, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for coming, for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that, that text save my spiritual life. Huh, huh. Yeah. Wow, thank you. Yes. Which hymn or song would you like to have sung at your funeral? So I'm a producer. <laughs> so it's like not about a song. <laughs> I've always felt like uh, it's like I would love it for it for it to be a uh, a uh, a kind of multicultural um Expression, hmm. you know. Hmm. Um, when I use the word liturgy, but kind of thematic, you know, I would I would have Urban Oxology put the theme together, hmm. almost have it like a show, <laughs> you know, have some good friends, have some words, hmm. you know, that could be shared. And, hmm. um, I mean, produce it in a way that, like, if I were to put together a show, they people would do that, you know. Um, and um, and they take for a few different traditions and. You know, I think um, I think I would love to get a song from Urban Oxology. You know, <laughs> I don't know which one, but I think because they every year they write new songs uh, and the interns write songs. So I'm like, oh, that's a new favorite, or I love this. You know, <laughs> um, and um, even if it was today, there's a song off the Porter's Gate album that my friend Paul Zach wrote called uh, "Your Labor's Not in Vain." Oh, I know that song. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I love it whenever Nostalgia sings it. Hmm. Like, I mean, I, I like when Paul sings it, but I think Paul likes it whenever Nostalgia sings it too. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I just, I think, yeah. So, I, so you know, for me, I mean, songs matter, but I think songs matter in context, you yeah. know? And so like, it's, it's almost of a question about like context. And I love to just kind of like people to put together a really moving experience, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Well, David, it's been just a joy getting to spend this time with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. It's good. Appreciate it. That's fun. Voices United, a congregational song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. 
Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise and Whitworth University student Taylor Heath for editing and production. <laughs>